Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. We came to New York in 2003. Nothing was happening in New York. You know, Silicon Alley, as they called it back then, was just kaput. And then one day I was browsing Craigslist because that's what you did in 2003. And there was a little ad, hedge fund, looking for, well, I can't even remember what it was, looking for excellent engineers. So I was like, all right, maybe. And I said to my wife, you know, this is, this is either the sketchiest thing ever or the best decision of my life. Like it's one of those two <laughs> things. You can't, you know, on Craigslist, there's no other way you can be, right? And it was probably the best decision of my life. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, we're joined by Matt Greenwood, Chief Innovation Officer at Two Sigma. And Matt shares with us some of the most unique and valuable cultural practices and processes behind the engineering org at Two Sigma. And so in our conversation, we cover some of the unexpected strategies that prepare you for scaling, like Two Sigma's intentional approach to relationship building with their frontline managers. And you're gonna be surprised at the impact that this had later on as the company scaled up. We also talk about how Two Sigma successfully deployed the inverse Conway maneuver. And we also get into reinforcing consensus-driven culture at over a thousand plus people. And Matt shares with us a number of different practices, approaches, and frameworks that you can introduce that help make that happen. Let me introduce you to Matt. Matt is Chief Innovation Officer and Head of Investment Management Engineering at Two Sigma. Matt's also an advisor at Two Sigma Ventures and works closely with the business portfolio companies as a board member and advisor. Matt began his career at Bell Labs and later moved to IBM Research, where he's responsible for a number of early efforts in tablet computing and distributed computing. Matt earned a bachelor's and master's in math from Oxford University and a master's degree in theoretical physics from the Wiseman Institute of Science in Israel. He also holds a PhD in mathematics from Columbia University, where he taught for many years. Enjoy our conversation with Matt Greenwood. First off, I just want to say welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. How's it going? It's Wednesday. How are things? It's good. You know, life is good. Whoever created this world had this brilliant idea of putting New Year's in the middle of the winter. You know, we have this dark time. Things are getting dark. It's snowy. It's rainy. It's cold. And yet this is the time we chose to invest in the rebirth. 2,000 years ago, it might have had a lot more weight to it. I still think today we kind of, you know, we, we reflect and we kind of view this really weird day of January the 1st as a kind of a fresh start, as it were. And I always get excited. I spend the last couple of weeks of the year, which is always a quiet time for us, uh, investing in myself, coding and reading and things like that. And that always gives me renewed vigor coming back at the beginning of the year. And this year is no exception, except uh, I spent uh, a week on a farm. So, you know, I said to people, there's nothing like farm work to kind of send to you. I, I can definitely relate to some of the, the farm tours as a centering, as a centering moment. So 
my father-in-law is spending time with him. They live in North Idaho and there's a, they have a, a larger yard with a lot of trees. Last year, 17 trees fell down. And so now we're in the process of processing the wood so that we could use it for firewood. So there was a couple afternoons where I had spent time splitting the wood, mostly stacking it. I'm not allowed to use the power tools, but we were out there for a long time and, and there's something really centering about that. So I definitely relate to that. To kick off our conversation, I think the quick context for folks listening in here and, and why this is really special. So probably a couple months ago, back in October, I was talking to a handful of folks in our community and we were talking about different gatherings and meetups we wanted to do in New York. And one of the things that stood out to me was a person shared, they're like, listen, like of all the companies here in New York City, the people you want to talk to are the folks at Two Sigma because there's something, something about the culture, something about what they're doing is really special. And it's very different than how a lot of other tech companies operate. What I'm excited for is we get to deconstruct a little bit of your personal leadership story, plus some of the unique elements of engineering culture at Two Sigma. And so what I'm hoping for is for people listening in, get inspired by different ideas and some things that maybe challenge their way of doing things and find a few nuggets of wisdom or different ways of operating that they can apply to their own teams and organizations. So that's why I'm excited. But I think, Matt, for us to begin, probably the natural place is with your career journey. I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through a little bit of that early journey. And I think the real question is, was finding Two Sigma on Craigslist really a part of that journey? <laughs> yes, that, that really was. But I, I maybe, maybe first I should just kind of, I'm sure that not all of your audience is in the financial industry. So let me just tell you a little bit about Two Sigma. Two Sigma, we call ourselves a financial sciences company. I mean, that's a, a little hard to hold onto, but really what we do is we sit in the financial industry, where, you know, all of the businesses that we do are some kind of investment. And we take the scientific approach, leveraging advanced technology, leveraging data science. And really we focus on trying to solve really complex problems in this financial services industry. Founded in 2001, we are headquartered, as I said, in New York. And today we're about 2000 people. And so let me rewind and tell you my story. You know, I found myself in 2003, so a couple of years into Two Sigma's life, at a turning point. Uh, I'd been in Silicon Valley since, uh, since just before 2000 or the beginning of 2000. I'd worked uh, in a startup where I was literally the first person in the door after the founders. I had this incredible ride for three years growing that company to well over a couple of hundred people. It was firmly rooted in telecommunications. It was hardware and software, and it was exciting until it wasn't. And I think that really tells you a little bit about who I am as well, right? I'm excited. I do things until suddenly they're not exciting. We came east to New York, my wife's family. You can tell I'm from a little further east across the pond, they say. Um, and so we decided to come a little bit closer to family. And we came to New York in 2003. Nothing was happening in New York. You know, Silicon Alley, as they called it back then, was just kaput. And really the only thing that was going was finance. And I really didn't want to be in finance. I'd been at Columbia. I, I did my doctorate up at Columbia in mathematics and I taught computer science up there. And so I had the opportunity uh, much earlier on to be, you know, in Wall Street. And I just didn't want to be there. I just was not interested in the kind of very, you know, Wall Street 90s persona. But uh, in 2003 with a burgeoning family, this is what pays the bills. And so I looked around at a variety of different things, buy side and sell side, that is kind of traditional banks as well as the hedge funds. And then one day I was browsing Craigslist because that's what you did in 2003. And there was a little ad, hedge fund, looking for, well, I can't even remember what it was, looking for excellent engineers. So I was like, all right, maybe. And I was working with a headhunter at the time, which is what everyone did. And he, he knew exactly who it was. He hooked me up. And I said to my wife, you know, this is, this is either the sketchiest thing ever or the best 
decision of my life. Like it's one of those two <laughs> things. You can't, you know, on Craigslist, there's no other way you can be, right? And it was probably the best decision of my life, right? We're sitting here 20 years later. I joined, there were 35 people, I think, something like that. Now we're 2,000. You know, I've been this beneficiary of this incredible growth and of really working through these hard problems, both in technology and finance, but also in organization. So it's been exciting. One of the things that you stood out to me when I'm thinking about career decisions was like this idea of you do things or you work on things until they're not exciting. And I think like that's simple but profound wisdom when it comes to making career decisions. And what I imagine like with the time at Two Sigma is that like what those things are that have been exciting have changed over over that period of time. And so I'm wondering if maybe you could highlight a couple of those like key moments that have kept you fascinated by the problems and the experiences, like bring us into some of those evolutions of how the organization is transformed. Yeah, I mean, I think really, you know, the first key point was really before I started working here. The night before I accepted the offer, I was on the phone to one of the principals. He said, do you have any more questions? I said, I have one more question. They said, what happens if I get bored? <laughs> so it's now only with the benefit of hindsight and 20 years and thousands of interviews have I realized that that question is an unbelievably rare question that, you know, someone would ask. I can't believe I had the husband <laughs> actually ask that question at the time. But he said, look, if you get bored because of you, you know, shame on you. I can't help. But if you ever get bored because you think the work you're doing isn't exciting, you come and talk to me and we'll find something. And, you know, I said this in an investor conference that we've had, I've held him to it for 20 years. And so just that opening, just that, you know, before I'd even walked into the door, the, the notion that the person who founded the company is interested in me solving the most interesting hard problems and had the belief that they are out there was an incredible shot in the arm before I even walked in the door. But, you know, I, I think through my career at Two Sigma, I've done a variety of different things uh, and focused on very different things. I, I, you know, I started here in almost in data engineering, but let's just say I started in data engineering. I built that out and that was before the world knew what data engineering was about. We're talking, right? Remember, we're talking 2003, 2004. I kind of made it up as I went along. I'd come from Silicon Valley. I, I don't know, you know, I was just doing stuff and it was incredibly exciting until it wasn't. And, and it wasn't exciting for a couple of reasons. We, we had grown into this, you know, mature organization-ish, right? Obviously it was much smaller at the time. And I was not really interested in providing what I knew the data organization needed, which was a really good set of processes, operationalization. And that just wasn't what grabbed me. On the other hand, the data, we'd been doing a lot of really fascinating work with data and we had been really out there. I wouldn't say the vanguard of data people. I would say, you know, we were like 10 miles ahead of the vanguard. I would be phoning up. Companies, uh, one company famously could not get the data off their hard drives. And I said, send them to me. And, you know, we got a, like, you know, 20 SunSpark stations through the door. And I had to figure out how do we boot these things up and pull the information off. That was, you know, I remember phoning AP back in 2005, 2006 and saying, I want your news. And they would be like, well, it's on the website. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. I want a feed. And they were like, wait, what's a feed? So, so we really kind of pushed the boundary. And over the years, I became really excited with some of the unstructured information that we were taking in, a lot of it. And I wanted to try my hand out at solving the problems there. And so I, you know, I went to the principal. I said, I, I want to do something different. I want to move from the engineering into the modeling side of the house and try my hand at unstructured text. That was it. That was the conversation. And the next day, maybe a few weeks later until I organized a backfill for myself. We, I was working on, you know, what, what we now call news. And it was fascinating. And that was great. It's still, you know, my baby. I love it. But soon enough, I was pulled back to humans and to the human problems. Because it turns out that in order to really drive this organization, you need to work well with human beings. 
to buy into the culture that we have. We don't believe that humans are disposable. We don't think about the lifetime of a developer as two to three years. We believe in investing in people and having that investment pay off in exponential terms over the years. And if you do that, if you really buy into that philosophy, then you have to think really hard about those humans, about how you're challenging them. I was lucky enough. I came from a startup and I, you know, had all I needed from the pitch that I was given on day one. But not everyone is like that. And some people need to be given that challenge explicitly. They don't go and find that challenge. And so how do you do that? How do you build the right growth path for each individual? And as I say to my managers now, you know, programs are incredibly fun to debug. Human beings, it's even more fun to debug those. And I think, you know, uh, after, after a bunch of years in modeling and in engineering, I kind of came back to the management. I spent the last, you know, N years, where N is probably quite a large number now, working on problems within an organization, human problems, and trying to solve those. And those are never solved, right? You can't ever push a button on a human being and say, you know, compile and push that one out. It doesn't work like that. Human beings are infinitely changing and they're part of a very complex world that we're trying to move in our direction. And that's really been kind of, I think, the, I would say the third or the fourth, depending on how we're counting, a real big change at Two Sigma for me. I want to dig into this this concept that you brought up because this is something you and I have talked a little bit about, this like firm belief in investing in people. And I think what's interesting about this is like when you look at some of like the average timelines for how long, like the tenure of how long will somebody will stay at a company, it's very much like the anti-pattern of this or it's like the anti-example of this where it's 1.5 years or 1.1 years, I think, for San Francisco or Bay Area-based companies. And so this idea of like the time horizon of like investing in people, the return of that investment comes two, three and more years and beyond. And so I was wondering if you could share a little bit more of like, how does this show up within Two Sigma of, of like investing in people and creating that, that culture in which people are experiencing that growth and that longer time horizon? I have this kind of fairly trite saying that I picked up in a book somewhere along the road. People can only solve problems that they can see. And I think that for Two Sigma, a lot of our learning has been as we see those problems arise, frequently we're trying to solve problems that are almost in our, in our rear view mirror. Um, and so over the years, we have kind of, although we understand that we want the growth of human beings to happen, how that works and where that works has changed uh, over the years. And so we have over the years put in a fairly delicate, integrated leveling system, much like other companies have. I think our take on it is slightly different. You know, levels are what you progress through in your career. The level represents a certain skill set that you've acquired. So they're much more about your ability to do certain things rather than your ability to have delivered on certain projects. And that's absolutely critical in a large organization because what I really want to be able to do is to say that any level six across the organization is fungible and interchangeable to the extent that they're, they're working on the same kind of technology. I want to know that they have the same skill set. That's kind of really critical. And so that kind of ladder of skills that we, we spent, we spent a lot of time over the years thinking about has really enabled us not to, you know, not to keep or grow individuals, but provide them with a framework, a lattice. You know, if you think of human beings, maybe as knowledge as, as a vine, we, you know, we've provided that lattice that allows people to climb up in any direction they want. That simple process, I think is very freeing. Right? A lot of people think that the career growth is this kind of game of football that they don't really know the rules to, and they don't even know which way they're meant to run up and down the pitch. And so providing them with not necessarily the rule book of how, you know, all the people we hire really want to know, they just want to check the box, right? We're very quantitative. Work isn't always like that, 
but nevertheless, to provide them with this kind of lattice there where they can say, okay, you know, what is my next opportunity? What are the choices that I have to learn? What skills should I be looking at for the next stage of my career? Really underpins a lot of the conversations that then you can have to form that career growth. As you, as you share this, like there was one other quote that stood out to me from one of our earlier conversations where you'd mentioned, we spend a lot of time thinking about how we work together. And I think as you describe this lattice and like the intentionality behind it, like you can really see the thoughtfulness behind structuring these, these types of elements. And so to open up the question or this topic a little more broadly, like how does the R&D organization function and like what are the elements of culture that set it apart in terms of how people go about getting things done within the organization? You kind of hit the nail on the head there with the observations kind of very intentional. We think very, very hard. Maybe some would say too hard, but we think hard and we, we understand that communication really has a lot of weight. It's what drives the organization. And so, for example, we don't call ourselves R&D. Once upon a time, you might think, well, modeling, you know, the, the people who write the models, that's the research and the people who do the coding, that's development, except for the fact that my developers also do research. It's not necessarily modeling, but it's really pushing the boundaries on research. I have many people in the organization who write papers, who go to conferences, who, you know, continue to produce real academic work that's research, even though they're software engineers. And I have many people who write models, who write a lot of code to go along with those models. And so we actually retired those words, R&D, many years ago. We felt that was too limiting. And we went for a kind of a much more functional modeling and engineering, and that's what we talk about, M&E, um, where everyone does R&D. That's the kind of shop that we're at. And so we, we, we're, we're very intentional about the way we think, and we work very hard to place inside the organization, inside the life of the organization, opportunities for almost everything that we want to get out. I, I'll give you a few examples. Many years ago, as we were beginning to bring managers first line managers online, because we kind of got to that growth, there was a real thirst for understanding how to manage. Now we can send people to management courses, but fundamentally the observation was that inside Two Sigma, we have a culture that we want to promulgate and more or less many of these first line managers have the same questions. And so what we did is we kind of created a structure where we would send these people out in groups, what we call the coffee clatch. They would go out and the rules were only two, right? You had to have them frequently. You could talk about anything. Someone had to take notes, but that was it. No topic off base, no one more senior or less senior, just an ability to have a linchpin across those first line managers for them to be able to develop the relationships with each other. But by the way, you know, 15 years later have blossomed into relationships across a much larger company. Um, and so thinking hard about well, what opportunities do you give the, not just the people in the organization, but the organization itself to grow are absolutely critical. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. What occurs to me as you're describing that was in a lot of ways, like you're planting the seeds of the relationships for the future scale of the organization that like as you go from 100 to over a thousand plus folks, 
those foundational relationships allow then the process of working to be more effective later on. And I know that's like probably undercounting the impact of like having meaningful relationships and having that space to talk about meaningful things. But the impact of that long term, I think, is really interesting. Yeah, I, I think it is. And, and look, I say this to everyone and I, you know, I think maybe it goes without saying, but there is no such thing as a free lunch. If it looks too good to be true, then it isn't. Right. There's always we what we want to do is we want to make the company successful. And we do that by making the people in the company successful. And for us, that's a kind of one hand washes the other. Right. You get to grow in your career. I provide you with amazing conditions and opportunities that grow you as a person, because I know that in that growth, you're going to give back many folds to the company. And so it's a kind of a symbiotic uh, relationship, as it were. Um, but we think very hard about the future. We had this conversation uh, when we talked about uh, Conway's law, right? So this was uh, uh, something that has been on my mind for at least a decade. Uh, so, so for those who don't know, Conway's law, you know, says roughly that the 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 systems that we create model, uh, you know, in a stronger version, model the communication patterns across the organization. But in a weaker version, it kind of models the organizational design. That is to say, if you have a team that's called Team X, they will probably produce Widget X. That was Conway's innovation. You know, if you speak to people in in organizations as they go through rapid growth, as we have, you can't really get away from it. It's quite shocking how beautiful this law plays out. But a bunch of years ago, as we were thinking about how do we evolve the organization, you know, we had this understanding that as we go from 100 to 200 to 500 to 1,000 to 2,000, the organization fundamentally changes. And how do we grasp that change? How do we make sure that that change is change that we want rather than change that kind of happens to us? And so we deploy what, what I think it's called actually on the webs, on the internets, right? It's called the inverse Conway maneuver. I don't think we made that up. I think that comes out of a blog somewhere. And the idea being is if you understand where you want to be with your products, with your technologies, then if you then create the organizational structure that mimics the, you know, those products or that product design, then you don't actually have to do much more. Conway's law then says you will be forced to create those kind of products. And so, you know, that we did and we have, and we produce those kind of products and it either looks like magic or good planning, but uh, it's, it's thoughtful and intentional organizational design. I've only ever heard legends of the inverse Conway maneuver. And so this is the first time I've had the ear of somebody who has deployed it successfully. And so I was wondering if you can kind of open up a little bit, like how do you deploy or apply the inverse Conway maneuver? Like what do some of those early meetings look like to execute that? Give me a little bit more of the, like the mechanics of, of intentionally harnessing your org structure to create what you want to create. Yeah. So, and, and I think this is much easier done, by the way, in a growing company. I think if you're in a large company that's not growing so much, you, you really don't have that many degrees of freedom. If you're in a company that's growing, you know, doubling every couple of years, you can say, well, the next end people who arrive, we're going to put them into this new thing. And that's your kind of invest combat maneuver. For us, you know, it was, it was very clear that like about 12, 13, 14 years in, we had not thought hard about the various sections of the organization that we would need in order to develop a fully thriving organization. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, at the beginning, we had no reliability engineering organization. So this is a very easy Conway, inverse Conway maneuver, right? We had no reliability engineering. And that meant that we had, you know, reliability as much as every team wanted to provide, right? No one was going to be the expert. No one was going to make it their full-time job. It was really an afterthought or 
at most a well-planned thought in many teams' life cycle. And we, what we did is we said, you know, we need to do more than this. If we're going to grow into the future, we need a team that looks after this. And, you know, we didn't invent anything, right? Google had this whole understanding of reliability engineering. And we looked at that and we said, okay, so how do we get there, right? It's not really enough to tell each team, you've got to have someone on the team who's read this book, who understands it, who's going to be uh, responsible for the deployment. And we said, well, if we really want to lean into this, we should create an organization that is responsible for reliability engineering. Now, you might stand back and go, well, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, look, many companies don't. But the observation here is that that is actually an implementation of the inverse common maneuver. You create the reliability engineering organization. There's only one thing they're going to end up doing, right? They are almost forced to do that. So I think that's kind of one of the classic examples, but we really did both in the big and in the small as we've kind of created little products and, and things that we want to do. What we've done is kind of ring-fenced, said, okay, this is about a five-year product. We're going to create the team now and it will grow into that product. A quick mechanical follow-up question. For the larger scope reorganization conversations, who are the folks that were key contributors to this? Like, who are the people you're bringing together to gain input and shape that conversation of what do we need to fully thrive? Like, what does the future look like? And then for the small ones, like, how are those, how are the large and the small conversations different? Yeah, so I think, I think the larger conversations are both more delicate, but also they happen across a group of people who've been around longer, right? So they are typically the senior leaders inside engineering, both senior management as well as senior individual contributors. And the benefit of that is many of these people have been around a long time, right? So as I said, I was, I think, employee 35, something like that. I think now I'm like 21 or 22. It's an organization where many of the early people are still around. And so you put 10 people in the room who've been here 15 years, you've got a lot of two sigma history in that room. So it's much easier to have a conversation about what do we do next? Because, you know, we're Bayesian in this company, right? So, you know, we kind of look around, look to the past in order to try and understand where we're going in the future. And so, the, you know, if you come into the room with all of this history, you can then say, okay, like, why is the future not going to be like, you know, why are we at a turning point now? Why do we need to reorganize? And then how do we do that? How do we do that in a way that gets us towards the future that we want? So those conversations, whilst they're weightier conversations, they happen amongst people who are kind of much more tightly connected and have, you know, lived in each other's pockets since Two Sigma was a tiny company. The smaller conversations are, you know, in that sense, less complicated because they're in a kind of a much smaller group of people, but they are fraught with more prob more human problems, right? Which is to say, well, why is this person, why, you know, why is she on this project and I'm not on the project? Uh, so there you have to spend a lot more time thinking about the individuals in it and thinking about the actual makeup of the small team. One of the things we do is we create optimal portfolios of instruments, but you can create optimal portfolios of human beings as well. And that means that you look at the people that you have at your disposal, you look at the project or the product that you want to do, and you say, okay, right, what do we need in order for this to succeed, right? Let's go and handpick the individuals. And that's problematic. I have to convince this person to give up that. At Two Sigma, we don't like to force anyone to do anything. Uh, so there's a lot of conversation that goes on. And therefore, the smaller ones, paradoxically, maybe are in many ways more complicated than what you would think about the large remakes. How do you approach those conversations? Because I think that is a constraint that is so powerful in order to create buy-in to make change or make a decision. And so I imagine like it's not convenient, but the ability to do that creates so much more 
energy and, and power and direction and ownership over having somebody move into a specific space. So how do you approach those conversations? I think it does. I, I think, you know, in many ways, this is how we grew up, right? And so we don't, it's not that we really know anyone different. And so we are a very consensus-driven culture. That's part of being nice geeks for the good and for the bad, right? We don't really like to engage in my way or the highway type thinking. Uh, and therefore, we're willing to talk to people. Now, when the company's two or 300, that's a very easy thing to do. As it goes to 1,000, 2,000, it becomes much more complicated. But it's still doable. Uh, you just have to think hard about it. Whereas consensus-driven culture in a group of 100 people is fairly straightforward. You just get people in a room, you have a conversation nudge the group towards some kind of a decision and you get there. When you're a thousand people, it's much, much harder to do so. But the reason isn't because there are more people. This is something quite paradoxical that we found out over the last couple of years. It's not that there are more people. The number of people you're having a conversation with is about the same number, right? Because what happens is that the organization of a thousand is roughly working on, you know, probably four or five big things, each of one of which is 200. And you rarely cut across those boundaries. And so you actually have the same number of people, and yet it feels a lot harder. And the reason it feels a lot harder is because with a group of 200 people, everyone implicitly understands their role in the conversation. As you grow to a thousand plus people, people don't understand. And so the, you know, there's a very powerful uh, model that we use frequently across management, it's the RACI model, right? So or Cairo, there are various different acronyms, but it's, you know, who's responsible, who's accountable, who's consulted and who's informed where we can't get to consensus, it's probably because there are multiple people in the room who believe they're accountable, but you can only have one accountable person. And so what I coach people to do is if you're entering this kind of conversation that has a lot of people, be very clear about the roles and responsibilities of the individuals in the room. That doesn't mean to say that you're kind of handing out badges with R, A, C, or I on them, right? But it does mean that you explain like, you know, for this part of the design, Joe is the accountant party and these three people are responsible and everyone else, we love to have your input, but it's consultative input and we'll take it or leave it. So don't get offended if we leave it. You know, so that's kind of the, the realization that we've come to over the years is that if you prepare well, if you kind of understand when you're going into these conversations, who plays what role and what responsibility, then you can still have a consensus driven culture, even across thousands of people. I feel like you just illuminated so many moments of friction that I've experienced where I'm in a conversation and I'm feeling anxious because what maybe my input as like a consultant is like not being heard. And so they're going to go a different direction and I'm frustrated. But that's because I didn't realize that like I'm not the one who's going to be held accountable to it. Personally, like for my personal insight, like that's a big switch is like understanding what is my role in that conversation. But I think then the responsibility of the leader is you can alleviate that type of anxiety. And I think that friction you highlighted is... So true. I'm like just looking back at all these experiences that I've had where that's been the unspoken thing at play, causing decisions to get hung up. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think many of these things with the advantage of hindsight, they look startlingly obvious, but it took us years of pain before, you know, one day I'm like, wait, hold on a minute. I think he just thinks he's responsible and she thinks she's responsible and they're just not sure. Let's see if we can clean things up. And, and, you know, that's something that is quite complicated with what I would call humble leadership. If you're not walking in saying, you know, these are the rules, or, you know, if, if you're not this big top down, but if you're genuinely trying to kind of corral everyone in the right direction, it's quite difficult to walk in and say, you're responsible, you're accountable, you're consulted. It flies in the face of that humble leadership. Um, and so it's very important. And I, I, you know, I, I bring this back again and again to my leaders. It's very important to be as crisp as you can 
when you need to be. Don't dance around the topic if you don't need to. Be as crisp as you can because ultimately, even if you think you're causing some pain, you're probably alleviating a lot of tension. One of these, these principles I've been really excited to talk to you about has been this idea of full-bodied problem solving. So I was wondering, first off, what is that? And can you bring us into a story or an example of, of how that's shown up at Two Sigma? You know, I, I think there are, again, two sides to this. There's the small and the large. This is the small. Now, this happened to me about 20 years ago. I'd been here maybe three months, maybe a year. I can't really remember. I do remember, of course, the time of year, which will become very important later on. I was uh, running the data organization. We were responsible, amongst other things, for the pricing feeds. And it was the middle of the morning, and uh, the pricing feed went down. And that means we weren't trading. And boy, you know, we're not trading. Everyone is running around like a maniac trying to figure out what's going on. As I said, I was running the data engineer organization. We're probably five people at the time, so I'm definitely hands-on keyboard, furiously trying to figure out what's going on. Everything looks okay from where I am, logged in. I'm tearing my hair out. I run down to the, uh, the, the machine room, which at the time was just down the hall, and so I can open it. All the lights are flashing exactly the way they should be. All the wires are plugged in. There were no rats eating the wires. I log on on console. Everything's working fine, except no prices are coming out. And I just, you know, 15, 20 minutes, and I just have nothing. I'm running around like a maniac, just trying to figure this out. And I have nothing left. And I'm talking to our CTO at the time. And our, our office had this kind of central kitchen that, you know, in New York, they have these beautiful old buildings with the skylights. And we're sitting and everyone at this company has some kind of, you know, AD, XD. And so he, I'm probably playing with a Rubik's Cube and he's tossing a ball up in the air. And he leans back and he looks up and he goes, I got it. And we're like, wait, what do you mean you've got it? And he runs off in the other direction. I'm like, what, what is, where are you going? And he goes to the, the, the front closet and he brings back a broom and he puts the broom in my hand. And I'm like, I think there were no words at the time. Like, what are you doing? And he looks up and he points up. He goes, it's snowing. This prize feed comes on the satellite. I bet the dish is full of, is full of snow. It was the middle of the winter. I run upstairs and I go outside and I'm like, oh, there were four satellite dishes. I just brush the snow. Indeed, they were filled. I brush the snow out of a bunch of them. By the time I get downstairs, everyone's trading again. And so, you know, it's an example of the full body. Now, we, we, we don't do that, but we do think very hard about the full individual, right? I say to all of my managers, you know, don't forget that everyone brings their full self to work. You might not see it. They walk in here at nine to five, but you can bet your bottom dollar that they bring everything that happened between five and nine to work with them. And so it's really important that you understand that, that you understand that there's a whole human being here, that they're not, you know, just the nine to five. And we've worked hard over the years to be able to provide that kind of 360 degree experience to make sure that people really bring everything. Because I think that if you do that, if you kind of bring your whole body to bear on problems, you've got a better chance of solving them, certainly for the people that we hire. And so over the years, we have the Hacker Lab, we hack and we build robots and we call it a gym for the mind as well as the requisite gym for the body and many, many opportunities to enhance different parts uh, of who you are, right? Not just the requisite bagels on, I think it's Tuesday now, bagel Tuesday and the free lunches, right? That's just the food, but also the other four senses. What an incredible story. I mean, I'm just imagining that moment of the duties not yet assigned to have the realization and the insight that there are snow on the dish and that's the solution. But to be able to like create the space to make that happen, I think is so, is so fun. All right, Matt. So we've got uh, a few minutes left. We have some rapid fire questions. If you're ready to jump into those. Wow. Almost never, but let's do it. 
So first question, what are you reading or listening to right now? Okay, so I am a bad reader. I have 15 books on my bookshelf and, you know, each one of them is halfway through. Uh, I, I think, you know, the one that has made the most impact on me recently, I love scuba diving. It's something lots of geeks do. I happen to love it. And I read this book recently called Whale Fall, which is kind of the story of Jonah, but updated for the 21st century about a scuba diver who gets swallowed by a whale and how he figures his way out uh, of the whale. And that was beautifully written and just made me pause on every other page and think, wow, this is amazing. Uh, so that's, uh, that's what I've literally just finished reading this past weekend. Next question, what tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? Uh, I, I think the tool that's had the biggest impact on me over my years uh, is, is actually a, an operating system called Plan 9. It was an operating system created by Bell Labs. And, and very specifically inside Plan 9, uh, there was an editor called Sam. And, you know, I came to Bell Labs being an absolute Emacs fanatic in Unix. And I joined Plan 9 and they said, hey, here's your workstation. And I logged on. I type in MIG, which is always my username, and I get this number back. And I'm like, uh, it's given me a string of numbers. And they're like, you know, they're like, well, yeah, it's a response protocol. You know, you've got to get that RSA key fob and you've got to type it in. And this was, we're talking about in the early 90s here. Coming from one way of thinking about computing and then seeing a fundamentally different way of almost everything, different languages, so many things that were different, really had this unbelievable impact on me to kind of understand that there really are many, many, many different ways that you can solve problems. And I still use Sam as my editor today. So if Rob Pike is listening, then thanks, Rob. And what a powerful introduction to something that makes you think differently about solving problems and like what a visceral way to feel that. I think that's so powerful. I've got one more question for you, Matt. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? There is one thing that I keep coming back to. It's not a mantra, but it's something, again, something that made me stop and just kind of fundamentally rethink. This was my son. I was in high school and he was relaying to me a conversation with a friend of his. He said to his friend, close friend, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And the kid turned around and said, what makes you think I want to grow up? <laughs> and this, this notion that growing up is something that we have to kind of all fit into this mold that's been created for us by generations past. And this notion that, well, hold on a minute, like, do we have to choose that future? Do we have to kind of be everything society wants us to be? It was an incredible, he said it, you know, on the fly, but I stopped. It was an incredibly powerful moment. We can call it a Peter Pan complex if you like. But this notion that we really do have a choice, everything that we do is a choice, that we don't have to be who people want us to be or who society expects us to be, but that we can chart our own path. And, you know, if that is second star on the right and ahead till daybreak, then, you know, that's what it is. But maybe, you know, the, the chart, the, the path that we chart ourselves is ultimately more important for society and certainly more important for us than the one that maybe we are expected to follow. The final reflection that comes to my mind is you, you mentioned technology is the closest thing to magic that you can find. And as we wrap up this conversation, like it occurs to me, like the type of magician that you are is like the philosopher, the wise philosopher magician. And so I think just thinking through all the different stories that we've had, it's been really special, Matt. And I, I really appreciate you opening up the stories and the things that have been so special and, and sharing just the different elements of, of Two Sigma. It's been really fun. The pleasure is mine. You can tell from me and from the voice that it's, it's a passion. People are a passion. Two Sigma is a passion and, and technology is a passion. And what we try and do here is make that for everyone. 
If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.